we think that about 80% of all stroke uh, type 2 diabetes and heart disease could be prevented by lifestyle behavior changes as well as 40% of all cancers. And we also know that we spend about one-fifth of our GDP on healthcare in the United States. And so when we look at that chronic disease burden, it is immense. And so that's where lifestyle as medicine is trying to bring this to the forefront. It's not alternative medicine. It's not something new. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Welcome back, everyone. It's good to have you back. It has been a whirlwind for me personally lately as I completed my step one of my board exams um, that are taken between second and third year of medical school. And really, they were originally scheduled to be taken in June, but of course, COVID delayed them and, and I ended up having to study all summer. So now I can officially call myself and, and really feel like a third year student. So I'm excited to begin the clinical portion of med school and to get to start taking care of patients. But believe me when I say, even though I am a relatively low stress guy, I really started to feel the stress as the whole process just dragged on and actually felt like I wasn't handling that stress management aspect of my life very well. And I guess I'm saying that because in this episode of the Primary Care Podcast, I speak with Dr. Michelle Tollefson, who is board certified in OBGYN and also in lifestyle medicine. And our talk covered so many things having to do with health and wellness and mental health. And for a while, we really drilled down on important points regarding students and physicians and other healthcare workers' own personal wellness, health, and mental health. Uh, I'll introduce our guest in just a moment. First, I will read a quick review of the podcast that was submitted on the Apple Podcast platform by a listener named Abby Stone. Uh, I'll skip the first part where she seems to be just buttering my bread and start with, it's nice to get a firsthand candid response from experienced practitioners in the field. I always love hearing about interesting cases and fascinating stories of patients over the years. It's also really interesting to get a physician's take on the ever-changing landscape of modern medicine, electronic medical Ah, electronic medical records, insurance and billing, and the patient-physician relationship. The challenges of starting your own practice, as well as words of wisdom for future practitioners. Well, thank you for that lovely review. And thank you all, the listeners, for spreading the word about the show. Really, as a med student, I don't have the time or resources to advertise the show in any meaningful way. So I rely on you good people to spread the word 
and grassroots this thing. And seems to be working so far as the show has been growing in popularity over the last year plus that we've been doing it. So thanks again. My guest on this episode is the amazing Dr. Michelle Tollefson. She talks about her background and training as an OBGYN and her transition into teaching and into scholarly pursuits of lifestyle medicine. She is very knowledgeable and also inspiring on the topic of lifestyle medicine, and she has such a warm, inviting demeanor that makes me want to listen to her for hours. Uh, this talk spanned a number of different topics. Perhaps the most interesting and, let's say, inspiring to me personally was discussing the ways in which she actually is actively changing the way medical education is enacted in this country. And she also talks about how the rest of us can get involved and cause meaningful change to incorporate more evidence-based lifestyle medicine practices into our core curriculum as student doctors and other healthcare professions as well. Uh, on top of that, she is also a recent breast cancer survivor. She completed chemotherapy treatments earlier this year and looks to be recovering quite well. Um, because there was so much to get into with Dr. Tollefson, I decided to kind of forego hearing her story of getting diagnosed with and getting treated for invasive breast cancer. However, we do touch on that a little bit toward the end of the interview. I wanted to direct listeners to some videos that she has on YouTube in which she tells her story uh, quite a bit more in depth. And I really recommend just searching her name, uh, Dr. Michelle Tollefson, uh, in Google videos or on YouTube or however you like to find videos. Um, in Google videos, the one video that comes up first um, is really great. It's called... Dr. Michelle Tollefson, a plant-based MD who is thriving with breast cancer. Uh, so yeah, that's the top result if you go to Google videos and you can go down the line from there and watch shorter ones where she has teamed up with Nine News here in Denver to discuss many aspects of her breast cancer journey. Um, one that I particularly liked is one that focused on uh, her exercise and physical therapy regimen uh, during this time. So check those out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And I'm, uh, I'm hoping that sometime in the future, we'll get to have her back on the show uh, to dive deeper into more specific topics. Um, but I hope that this episode and this interview will serve as many people's primer and intro into the concepts of lifestyle medicine and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And real quick, before we get started, I want to direct people to something that we talked about in the body of the interview, which are two different kind of resources for students and probably for many other types of people. Uh, one is the email address that you can email to find out a lot more about lifestyle medicine, get some resources, get some questions answered, or just kind of make contact. 
And for students, that is trainees at lifestylemedicine.org. Trainees at lifestylemedicine.org. And you can email them and uh, just reach out. Uh, another thing we talked about in the interview is an upcoming conference at the end of October, uh, which is the Lifestyle Medicine Conference 2020. And it's taking place virtually, but um, Dr. Tollefson was telling us that there were some amazing deals for medical students. Not sure about other professions, um, but at least for medical students. So you can check that out on their website. Um, and that is taking place virtually October 22nd through 25th. And again, she talks a little bit more about that in our interview. Okay, let's get to the good part. Here is my talk with Dr. Michelle Tollefson. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and thank you, Dr. Michelle Tolifson, for joining me via Zoom. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, and uh, I was actually um, been thinking about this conversation that we're about to have for a long time, so I've been nervous that we're not going to get into everything that I <laughs> want to get into, and I, I think that still will definitely be true because I feel like you're a wealth of information that uh, I could talk to you forever about. But, oh, well, I'd be happy to come back if there's more to discuss. Great, great. I, uh, I just might take you up on that, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into what we can get into right now. And today, um, let's have you introduce yourself to the listeners. And uh, let's start by talking about your upbringing and your background and your, your first interest in medicine as a career. Sure, sure. So, um, so I'm Dr. Michelle Tollefson. I am board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. That's my original training path and board certification. And then a couple of years ago, I took the exam to receive board certification through the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. So I have those two board certifications. I teach full-time at Metropolitan State University of Denver. I am an associate professor there. And I currently am the secretary of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is a professional organization of almost 5,000 health professionals, a little over half of those being physicians, MD, DO. I'm a mom. I am um, to three fabulous kids, a wife, and also a breast cancer survivor. I was diagnosed about a year ago. So all of those things, all of those things together. Wow. But yeah. a little bit about- You wear a yeah. lot of hats. I do wear a lot of hats and enjoy enjoy them all. So, um, so as far as my upbringing, I knew that I wanted to go into medicine from a really early age. My family is really um, has many health professionals. So, my dad's a pediatric dentist, and now my youngest sister's a pediatric dentist too. My um, grandmother and multiple aunts are nurses. I had an aunt who was an occupational therapist, and. A, uh, an uncle who's a physical therapist, so very surrounded by uh, health professionals. And so I knew from an early age that I wanted to go into healthcare, and medicine just always seemed to be a natural fit. I was fascinated by the human body and science and anatomy and physiology, and just had that kind of natural desire to care, to care for others. Um, I wanted to help. I wanted to heal. I wanted to, I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to help others lead a healthy life. 
And so, um, so yeah, so medicine was a good fit. I went through undergrad, med school, right into, um, right into med school at Creighton University and then did my OB-GYN residency at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, went into OB-GYN. Oh, I mean, there's so many specialties, but OB-GYN fascinated me in particularly. I loved surgery. Uh, I think that the human body is absolutely amazing. And to be able to to perform surgery and to see the human body um, in such an intimate way is, uh, and to be able to heal through surgical techniques is, um, I guess, is a privilege. Uh, To be able to be present at birth, uh, delivering babies, I mean, that's one of the greatest experiences that uh, I think a human can ever have is to be be part of such a um, such an event, and so that was exciting and fascinating. And then women's healthcare, women's healthcare just always interested me. I'm not sure if it's because I didn't have bro- brothers and only have have sisters. Grew up around um, grew up around a lot of females, but women's healthcare just was was a natural fit was a natural fit for me. And so I went right into med school, and then my residency at the University of Missouri in Kansas city and, um, had my daughter there while I was in residency. We had six females were, you know, our residency class. And, um, anyway, did my residency there. We were really busy as far as obstetrics and took care of a large indigent population. Um, and it was, it was a great place to train. It was, it was big and busy. And, and I would encourage that for all of your, your, your med school listeners is, is, really spend time evaluating um, the specialty you want to go into, of course, as well as where you train, because that experience is, is really important. Um, the University of Missouri in Kansas City had a great obstetrical experience. However, their GYN surgery numbers were lower than, um, lower than ideal. And so I graduated from the residency program not being as comfortable with um, I guess was surgery as I would have liked to have been, and I believe that the that the program um, received some feedback on needing to change some things after I graduated because of that. Mm-hmm. But that kind of ties in. I went then directly to into private practice. I came back to my hometown of Loveland, where I still live, about an hour outside of Denver. Yep. Joined a big, busy OB/GYN practice, which um, which is a fabulous group. And, um, and jumped right in, loved connecting with patients, loved doing surgery and delivering babies. Uh, but I had had my daughter when I was in residency, and that was before the 80-hour work week went into effect. Yeah, um, actually, yeah. there was that transition while I was in residency. And so my daughter's first couple of years of her life, I really wasn't too involved. I was, I was at the hospital, um, busy, busy being a resident, but not really being a mom. And so when I came into private practice, I had this, this idea in my mind that if I could just make it through residency and get to private practice, everything would change. And I would, I would be able to kind of live the lifestyle that I had envisioned. Um, but that wasn't really the case. I was still incredibly busy. A lot of time spent, um, at the hospital being on call and still, um, even with, with mentorship of, of the large ob group, I went into still not feeling I guess, as, as uh, comfortable with surgery as I wanted to, it created a lot of stress. And so eventually I decided to leave that practice, even though I love that group, but realized that I wanted something that was different. I looked in a lot of places. I, I was actually approved to start the University of Colorado's high-risk OB MFM maternal fetal medicine program, but then kind of did a whole evaluation of my life and said, what do I really want? What do I want for my family? I had a, a couple, a daughter who was a couple years old 
and decided not to do that MFM fellowship, but instead to look for a different practice. And at that time, um, got introduced to lifestyle medicine. So that's a long answer to your question. No, that's a good <laughs> yeah. answer. Uh, I, I, I like being <laughs> thorough and, and really learning about people's uh, backstories and backgrounds and just their interests in medicine. It's, it's funny to me because you're talking about you, that was the impetus to get into lifestyle medicine was to make this lifestyle change. It's not really yeah. maybe one that people think of as lifestyle medicine, uh, just to be there for more for your family and, and to just create a different uh, home environment. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. can you clarify for me and everyone else um, what mm -hmm. you mean by the 80-hour work week um, limit? Um, sure. Because I know that it's changed throughout the years of uh, what kind of uh, regulations uh, wow. go on to regulate how much resident physicians work. And I'm definitely not an expert in this area, but so let's see, I went to, I graduated from med school in 98 and from, um, no, undergrad in 98 and med school in 2002. So I was a resident from 2002 to 2006. And so at the beginning of residency, I don't think our hours of working were limited at all. We could just work, you know, we were on different services and when we were covering labor and delivery, we were, um, we were there. It was, it was a great experience um, being able to follow patients for a long period of time, um, you know, with those, those long call hours. But I don't think our hours were really regulated. I didn't, I didn't feel like it was I guess it was just the norm then to, to put in over 80 hour work weeks. It was just what everybody, what everybody did. And then, um, around that time, uh, there was, I, there was a, a rule that went into effect saying that our, that we could only have an 80 hour work week. And I think that that didn't include classes. I'm not, not, um, completely sure. There was a lot of debate around that time as far as would that jeopardize the training experience because, it had always, I don't, as far as I knew, there was, as far as I know, there wasn't a limit before that. And so we had those long hours and there were, there were concerns about if we limit the number of hours worked, will physicians, will residents not be able to follow their patients, um, you know, for as long of a period of time? Will you lose that continuity of care? What if you operate on somebody and they go back to the OR? What if you're following a laboring patient and then your 80 hours are up? So there was a lot of unknown, um, a lot of frustration during that time, a lot of concern that we wouldn't be that residents wouldn't be trained as well as those who had come before always putting in those, those longer work weeks. So, um, so yeah, there was a lot of sleep deprivation, um, a lot of sleep deprivation too. I remember I was coming home one time from, from being on call and, uh, was at a stoplight close to my home and fell asleep and took my foot off of the Wow. the brake and rolled forward really slowly and, and bumped into the person's car in front of me. I jumped out of the car and was in tears. And the person who I bumped into, we checked oh, the cars, there was no damage, but they were actually comforting me. And I was like, I'm so tired. I'm a doctor. I'm yeah. So, oh, no. so, um, the sleep deprivation, yeah, um, legitimately scary, especially yeah. when I'm talking about driving home from a, you know, a really long shift. Yes. Yeah. So, so when we talk about lifestyle, the lifestyle that I led as a resident, I don't think was the most healthy. I survived. I wasn't a coffee drinker at that time and drank way too many, um, diet sodas on labor and delivery to stay awake. I didn't exercise very much. I mean, it was really just kind of trying to survive, um, putting all of our time into studying for exams and, and mm -hmm. into being a resident. So sleep deprivation, high stress levels, um, I personally did not exercise a lot, except maybe when I was running to a, a delivery, right. um, and, and eating a lot of food that, 
was brought in by drug reps and cafeteria food. And at University of Missouri in Kansas City at, at Truman Hospital, a great hospital to train at, um, in the basement at that time was McDonald's. And so in the middle of the night, you would see all the, you would see our patients sometimes wheeling their IV poles and we would be waiting in line with them at McDonald's for a wow. middle of the night food. Um, so, so I would say not the healthiest lifestyle. I tried to be healthy, but maybe didn't have, um, I guess the healthiest lifestyle. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like it. I mean, yeah. but you're kind of just trapped in that, in that lifestyle, I yeah. imagine. Yeah. And then also what's interesting too, is that I think even now, um, in med school, most doctors get about 19 hours of nutrition. And so that's not a huge area of focus. I even remember my apartment that I lived in back when I was a resident or when I was in med school in Omaha. Uh, and then, and even when I was a resident in Kansas city is rarely did I use my oven. Rarely did I cook. I um, bought a lot of pre-prepared meals that I would heat up and ate a lot at the, um, at the cafeteria or brought home drug rep food that I would heat up. And so it's interesting, even though, even though as I was trained, I learned about the importance of healthy eating, but really didn't have, really didn't spend time cooking. I learned about the importance of exercise, but felt like I had to focus on, um, on my exams and studying and, and being there for patients, didn't focus on my own physical activity. Yeah. And then stress reduction and sleep as an OB-GYN resident. Oh my goodness. I Doesn't mean, exist. stress, yeah, stress and um, sleep, a lack of sleep and high levels of stress was just the norm. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that kind of interests me. You said 19 hours on average for a medical student to um, get trained in nutrition. And I'm yeah. trying to think of my experience so far. I'm uh, two years into med school out of four and I'm trying to think of actual curriculum, curricula, yeah. curriculum yeah. Um, that is dedicated towards nutrition. And I'm coming from a relatively kind of open-minded, holistic, yeah. lifestyle -y, uh medical school. Yeah. And you're in Colorado, which is a healthy state where there's an emphasis on this even more so than many other states across the U.S. Yeah. But I'm just I'm trying to think how much dedicated time we've had towards that. It's been yeah. very little. And, and when people talk about nutrition, they're just, you know, the first two years of med school, the students just want to be fed, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. information that's going to help them on the board exams. Yeah. And, yeah. They, and, that's, and we just kind of dismiss and, and don't even really think about much else. That's information that's given to us in terms of practical advice or practical uh, education. If it's not going to be on boards after your second year. Yes. Yeah, so you, you said that perfectly. The students, I mean, there's so much knowledge. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. You're trying to take all this knowledge in. And so, so there has been little training um, and there's been very little representation of healthy lifestyle or lifestyle behavior. So nutrition, physical activity, stress, sleep, um, connections, the real science behind that, very little on the boards. And and the universities, the med school's job is to prepare students for those boards. And so there's been this disconnect as far as what many providers and their patients are saying they want doctors to have when they come out. They want, and many patients assume that their doctors are very knowledgeable about healthy eating. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and maybe you learn about berry berry or some some nutrition uh, questions for those few those few few specific questions or sure. deficiencies that you rarely see. But how much are you learning about that patient who comes in with obesity? I mean, we know that our rates of obesity in the United States are are so incredibly high. Type two diabetes, hypertension. 
And for many of these chronic lifestyle diseases, you'll see as their common recommendations, you know, first line therapy is is um, lifestyle modification. So nutrition, physical activity, stress, sleep, all of those, Mm -hmm. yet there's so little training and patients expect that we know it. And so physicians are kind of left in that, uh, eat healthy, you should eat healthy and then come see me. So, so as a provider, as a physician, I can say before I was trained in lifestyle medicine, I would see somebody and they would say, you know, I would see somebody and they would say, I want to be healthier. And I would say, okay, so you know, I, I knew the recommendations. You need to improve your diet. You need to, to eat healthy. You need to exercise. You need to focus on your sleep and then come back and see me in six months. And they would come back and they would say, I tried, but I didn't change those behaviors. And I, you know, it was like, okay, well maybe see a dietitian, try harder. Um, but that's where lifestyle medicine has really looked at the science of behavior change, because most people know that they, most people know that eating, more fruits and vegetables, whole grains. Most people know that that's healthy. And most people know that eating um, processed food, fast food, junk food is not healthy. But why do we still have so many healthcare providers, so many knowledgeable people still um, embracing or, or engaging in behaviors that are not healthy? And so that's where um, the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, some large groups have really looked at the science of behavior change so now we have the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaches, which has really um, shown that we need those behavior change experts to walk alongside patients because behavior change is not easy. It's, it is hard. Yeah, that and, seems to um, be the limiting factor here because we know that knowledge is not enough to actually yeah. you know, change people's behavior. Everybody mm-hmm. knows, every smoker knows that it's uh, not, a, not a good thing to, to be a lifelong smoker, but man, it's yeah. hard to change. And like, likewise with uh, dietary stuff or sleep or any sort of habit. So that's Um, why I would say we need the knowledge and then also behavior change real quickly about the education, the nutrition education. Yeah, please. The American college of lifestyle medicine is working with um, some organizations to, uh, to write questions that will hopefully be on board exams in the future with a focus on lifestyle medicine, there is a whole process behind that mm-hmm. um, as far as writing questions and then getting them approved. So we are moving in that direction, which is really exciting because healthcare providers, um, physicians, health providers, and patients, uh, I believe, I believe want more lifestyle medicine expertise from their providers. And um, so hopefully we're, so not hopefully we are moving in that direction, which is, which is exciting. That's cool. Um, I really like that. Uh, I kind of want to also just put a pin in that and come back to those two last topics that we just talked about, which is just the uh, American College. Is that right? College? American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Of of Lifestyle Medicine. Thank you. I almost botched it. Um, And then uh, also the last thing we talked about before that, which is just uh, how to coach people or guide people Mm -hmm. along the way through um, transitions and changes in their lives. Um, But if we can get to that in just a little bit, because I want to talk about your transition into teaching. And I know you um, set up a wellness coaching um, program. Is that correct? And that yeah. you kind of transitioned from a career in uh, as a clinician to a, as a as a teacher. Sure, sure, sure. So when I I was early, fairly early in my career in private practice, and decided that I wanted a a lifestyle change. For myself, and that, um, and I left the big busy practice that I was a part of, 
And I had what is called a non-compete clause, which said that I couldn't practice, um, I couldn't practice OB-GYN within a certain radius for a certain period of time. I think it was a couple of years. And so during that time, I became the the director of women's wellness education for Poudre Valley Health System in Fort Collins, which is now part of UC Health, Mm -hmm. and um, started doing some teaching. And I also was part of a group that was looking into building a, a healthy lifestyle center. It had a different name, but it was essentially... Uh, an area that was designed to focus on health and well-being, but um, but in the end, it ended up being more of a focus on medical aesthetics, which wasn't the area that I wanted to wanted to be in. And so I left that uh, particular project. But in the meantime, while we were exploring that, I met some amazing people who changed the trajectory of of my career. I met Dr. Edward Phillips, who. Um, started the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine. He came out to Colorado and did um, did some work at, within our system at that time. And so I became guest faculty for the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at that time with a focus on bone health hmm. and um, had the opportunity to go to some conferences there and meet some other leaders such as Dr. Beth Frades, who's the president-elect for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and started the first trainees lifestyle medicine program at Harvard years ago. So I was able to meet them. I joined the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Dr. Edward Phillips encouraged me to do wellness coaching training, mm-hmm. which I was intrigued by. So I did the training through Well Coaches and it I learned about the science of behavior change, about how it's not enough just to say you need to do X, Y, or Z. Like most people know that. Most people know they should exercise. But how do we actually how do we actually explore the science of behavior change? How do I talk to somebody about setting goals, about motivational interviewing, about um, addressing the the discrepancy between their current behaviors and where they want to be, overcoming obstacles. Uh, and so I did that training. And even though I, I would never call myself a wellness coach because I don't think I practiced long enough, I didn't focus on that. Mm-hmm. I learned some incredible skills that I think are useful for anybody in the health professions to know. Uh, I, I sometimes use those skills maybe on my on my kids, my husband, and then myself with setting goals, but it right. really taught me a lot about how difficult behavior changes and about changing the way that I talk or speak to people who are wanting to change their behaviors, meeting them where they're at, rolling with resistance, about sometimes having my expert hat on because knowledge is power, especially when it comes to lifestyle changes, but that that, that knowledge is not enough. We have to have that knowledge. And then we have to have that support through behavior change. So there's now that's called the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaches. And our university at Metropolitan State University of Denver has a wellness coaching and lifestyle medicine pathway where anyone can take three courses online and then sit for that national exam. But there are other other programs uh, around the country as well that prepare people to sit for this national exam. And then the National Board has been working on insurance reimbursement for those wellness coaches because if Mm -hmm. we can't put it into practice and get it reimbursed and make it sustainable, then it's just a nice idea. Yeah. So wellness coaches are basically there to work with a practice or with a physician. Um, and, um, what exactly would they be doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So they function in many different, in many different roles. Some are within worksite wellness, some are working with insurance companies, some are actually in a private practice. And that's where I, I believe we'll see that more and more. Um, but in an ideal, so this is my, in my ideal world, a physician would see someone and say, okay, you know, I've, I've diagnosed you with hypertension and it's not um, lifestyle medicine, wellness coaching. It's not an either, or it's not alternative medicine. It's very evidence-based, um, but it's, it's that um, whether somebody's starting on a medication or not for their hypertension, 
saying also these are the lifestyle changes that support um, support you uh, getting healthier. And so I, I want you to address healthy eating and X, Y, or Z. They put that in their note and then they would would hopefully have a wellness coach on their team or with the health system that would come in and say, okay, Mrs. Jones, um, I see that your doctor recommended X, Y, Z. What do you think about this? Where are you at? What are, you know, what, um, so they would actually work with the patient as far as behavior change to increase the chances that that patient's actually successful, um, calling and checking in on that patient, looking, helping them set goals, uh, and then checking back in to see what worked, what didn't, um, and just really focusing on that science of behavior change. There's a whole, um, a whole field of study, and I don't think that physicians necessarily need to become National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coaches, though I would I would love that. I think it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at maybe least to be able to got, partner with coaches. Yeah. 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 And I think maybe if we got some of that training along the way in our medical education, that, that would probably yes. that would probably make you happy and, yeah, <laughs> and definitely. Up, uh, better to have these conversations or or implement these techniques. Huh? And that's yes, and that's where the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I currently um, sit on the education committee. And we have education, so working on some even K through 12 education, but pre-professional lifestyle medicine education for um, pre-med students. That's where we have the uh, new major at MSU Denver that I help create at the pre-professional level, a lot of pre-meds, but then also trying to get that education into or more of an emphasis in med schools. And then there's certain residency programs where it's being emphasized. Um, So really trying to really trying to uh, embrace that at all different levels and realizing that many people who want this education won't have had it in med school. And so offering CMEs, there's um, physicians, MDs, DOs can sit for the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine certification to become a diplomat of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. So that's that board certification. Mm -hmm. It's a secondary board. uh, So you already need to have your initial board certification in internal medicine or OB-GYN, and then you can take that. But there's a lot of education that's out there. There are free webinars. There is the conference that's coming up. There, um, So there, there's curriculum where you can learn about behavior change. You can learn about, about nutrition. You can learn about exercise and how to incorporate that. And that's really where the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has stepped up and says, we have all of these educational offerings to meet people wherever they're at. Because we know that in order to truly transform healthcare, in order to transform education, we have to meet providers wherever, um, meet healthcare professionals wherever they're at and provide this education because most people don't have it in med school yet, though we're moving that way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that makes a, a good transition for us to talk about the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and some of those educational opportunities that you just talked about. Um, a couple of maybe naive questions. Um, that I'm curious about. It's always kind of fascinated me when people are certified and board certified in something that's not a residency that they can go into. You, I don't, you can't go into a residency in lifestyle medicine, but you just refer to it as a secondary certification. How does that work exactly? You have to be certified, board certified in certain specialties, or could it be any specialty? And then you get a secondary certification on top of that. Yeah, so um, so there's a long process, a long process to become kind of have that that separate recogni- recognition as a primary specialty, and so the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is involved with with that long process. But often, when there are new areas of specialization, 
it will be um, a board certification that someone can get if they already are board certified in another specialty. Because yes, I didn't do a separate residency in lifestyle medicine. I did that study of, of material on my own on the courses. There's some CME and then you go and you take an exam. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so down the road, there are meta, there are residency programs that are focusing now on lifestyle medicine and there will be um, eventually be specialist training where you can specialize in that area. But for right now, a lot of some of the people who are, are specializing in physiatry, um, there's a lot of interest in internal medicine. A lot of primary care providers yeah. are doing the extra certification in lifestyle medicine. A lot of people who aren't taking, so we have almost 5,000 members uh, at the current time. And we've been, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine started in 2004, I believe. Mm -hmm. So we have many members who are learning who are learning about lifestyle medicine and, and embracing it, who haven't taken that secondary board exam. Um, but it is, it's, it's this a long, long, a long, long process of moving through when you have an interest in a certain field or where there's a certain field in a certain professional organization and where it actually becomes a separate standalone specialty. And so I would say lifestyle medicine is in, is in that, um, long process. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what, I guess, what does it mean to be a fellow versus board certified in uh, lifestyle medicine or to just be a member? What are the differences there? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so just first, I'm, I'm, I think you probably have been able to get, and your listeners are probably able to guess what lifestyle medicine is, but lifestyle medicine is the use of evidence-based healthy lifestyle behaviors, such as nutrition, physical activity, um, stress, stress, healthy stress, um, resiliency type of practices. Mm -hmm. uh, can, and I just, can I just read your, um, uh, <laughs> sure. your um, uh, basically your email signature because I, I copied yeah. and pasted into my notes here because I think it's just so brilliant and short and summed up. It just says, eat plants, keep moving, sleep well, be present, stay <laughs> calm, love people. Just, you know, yeah. six, so two those are essentially phrases. Yeah, that, that, yes. that's great. Those are essentially the, the pillars of lifestyle medicine. So it's the, just the use of those evidence-based healthy lifestyle behaviors to prevent, treat, and sometimes reverse chronic disease. And we know that about 80% um, of all, all healthcare visits are due to chronic lifestyle, um, chronic lifestyle conditions that have a root in lifestyle behaviors. Uh, we think that about 80% of all stroke, uh, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease could be prevented by lifestyle behavior changes as well as 40% of all wow. cancers. And we also know that we spend about one fifth of our GDP on healthcare in the United States. And so when we look at that chronic disease burden, it is immense. And so that's where lifestyle as medicine is trying to bring this to the forefront. It's not alternative medicine. It's not something new. Hippocrates, I believe is credited with saying whether or not it's true. Um, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. We right. want people to live longer um, and to live fuller lives. Yeah. And so that's kind of at the heart. It's not something different. It's not a new flashy pill. It's not a whole big panel of, of different lab tests that you should order. It's not that everybody needs to take this supplement. Really what it's saying is healthy lifestyle behaviors need to be emphasized. We need to help educate clinicians with this information. We need to support them. So we, ACLM has um, people working on policy, working in Washington because we need it supported as far as reimbursement. We need it being taught. We need certification. Um, we need to come together as health teams to really treat the cause. Still knowing all of our other things. However, we need to know 
we need patients to know that we have a new um, type 2 diabetes patient bill of rights that the ACLM came out with, as well as a training course on reversing and treating type 2 diabetes with lifestyle medicine. We need patients who are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes to know that there is a way to, um, there's a way to treat and reverse type 2 diabetes. It doesn't mean not to use your medications, but it means that we need to teach physicians how to de-prescribe. We need intensive lifestyle modification programs to work with those patients, that patients have a right to know that, um, I guess, the significant impact that lifestyle behaviors can have on their health, because too often, our patients believe that their genetics are their fate, um, that it's, you know, I'm destined to get cancer because my mom got cancer. I'm destined to to um, have a heart attack and die because, because that's what my family has always done. But really, they need to know that those lifestyle behaviors, they're simple. No, there's not a big broccoli fund or you know, foundation that's advertising broccoli on TV. So sometimes yeah. these healthy lifestyle behaviors are just getting up and walking seems so basic and boring um, that people don't know the true power of them. But if we're able to help support them with that, they can see tremendous change. But I, I so I, I diverged, but the ACLM, so members, Members, so health professional organization and um, and students speaking to anybody who's listening who's a student, please consider joining the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I wish I would have, well, let's see, 2004, I was in residency when it started. But anyway, I wish I had had it when I was in med school. So trainees, we say trainees are, are, in, um, are in school. And so you can join, I think it's like 45 or $55. It's a an inexpensive price. And then um, the also you can- for the year, and you can yeah. come to the conference then for um, for forty five or forty nine dollars. But a really, uh, we have a conference coming up, yeah. so I would encourage you to join. There are opportunities for scholarships, like the Donald A. Pegg Scholarship. There are immense opportunities for networking. If you want to work with some of the leaders in these areas, um, mentoring, networking, service opportunities, get involved in scholarship. The American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine does some amazing publishing and we love to have students involved with us and the different books that we're working. I mean, there's just tremendous opportunities there. So that's to be a member. And then if you decide, so members can decide to do certification, MDs and DOs. So physicians go through a separate entity that's, that is, um, I guess it's, um, we work side by side, but there we're different organizations. So there's the American board of lifestyle medicine, and that's where physicians, MDs, DOs do their board certification through a separate board. Just like I went to the American board of OB-GYNs to get my, my, um, AVOG certification, you go through the board of lifestyle medicine. So that's a, that's a certification for physicians. Um, and then the American college of lifestyle medicine, we certify non-physicians. So nurses, um, dietitians who want to, who want to gain more education about lifestyle medicine and sit for that certification exam as well, which I encourage because lifestyle medicine, it's not just about the physician. It takes that whole healthcare team. It takes the nurses and the dietitians and public health and your social workers and behavioral health specialists. It takes PTs, OTs, dentists, everybody coming together, that interdisciplinary team. So that's to get that certification, whether the Board of Lifestyle Medicine by American Board of Lifestyle Medicine as a physician or American College of Lifestyle Medicine for non-physicians, that's the certification. That's separate from membership. Mm-hmm. That takes extra studying and then taking that exam. And people are doing this worldwide. There are um, International Society of Lifestyle Medicine. There are groups all over who are also doing this. And then there's um, what's called a fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. That's just someone who's been very involved in the college and demonstrated a high level of leadership and service to the college. So I'm a fellow of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I just 
received that status, I think a month or two ago. Um, so thank you. So, so those are, but you can be involved. Like it's so easy to get involved in their member interest group. So as an OB-GYN, I co-chair the women's health, uh, member interest group with a few other OB-GYNs, uh, internists, and we have over a hundred members. So if you want to get involved in that, we are doing tons of cool things. You can focus on pregnancy, menopause, reproductive, um, subcommittees. We meet quarterly on zoom. You can get involved and you can do as much or as little as you want. There are tons of opportunities, um, from posters and publishing and like, oh my goodness, get involved. And then, um, but there are other groups. There's one that's particularly of interest right now with what we have going on is, um, the heal member interest group, H E A L health Mm -hmm. equity achieved through lifestyle medicine, helping to address health disparities. Um, we want like lifestyle medicine should be available for everyone. But if we look at um, food deserts, if we look at health inequality and access to um, more whole foods, uh, healthy places to exercise. So really looking at that, um, and we have, there's a group that focuses on VA and Department of Defense, a lot of excitement um, with Whole Health and Eddie Phillips, who helped, uh, who started the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine, working on advancing that. Cardiology, tons of excitement in Cardiology in the um, Dean, following Dean Ornish, um, Dean Ornish's footsteps, the ability to reverse um, reverse chronic disease. Um, we had at our last conference, um, I'm forgetting her name, the Nobel laureate uh, with her research on telomeres. Oh, um, anyway, but the, the research on epigenetics, I know on epigenetics and and Dean Ornish's work on um, on early prostate cancer and looking how lifestyle modifications can um, uh, can change how genes are expressed, the microbiome. Um, I mean, it's it's just incredibly incredibly exciting. And yeah, no, you're painting a vivid picture of all the different things uh, you know a student or um, anyone could really get into and and yes. learn about and get involved with uh, within uh, the ACLM, the uh, American College yeah. of Lifestyle Medicine. So if I can, um, can oh, I interrupt for one yeah, second? Please keep going. Sorry, I get ex- no, I get excited and then I can't stop. You're excited, so, but it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's clear that you're passionate about it. Yeah. So Rocky Vista or any other med students, if you are interested in getting involved in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, you can just email trainees, T-R-A-I-N-E-E-S, right? At lifestylemedicine.org, trainees at lifestylemedicine.org. And um, Shannon Worthman, who's ACLM staff, will connect you with that network. As I mentioned, I, I get to work, I have the privilege of working closely with Beth Grady's who helped found the first lifestyle medicine trainees group at mm-hmm. Harvard, but now they are spreading across the United States in med schools, nursing schools. Um, but I would love for Rocky Vista to have a trainees student organization and to help support you as students and support a faculty member. Anyway, but the, the opportunities are tremendous and I really would love to encourage your students to tap into that network. It's um, anyway, what I've oh, seen from cool. yeah. the med students who are part of it has been, uh, has been amazing. So I, I just want to make sure that you're aware of, aware of that. Yes. I, I and I uh, plan to promote that in the kind of the intro part of the podcast too, before we get into uh, um, the interview. Um, right. So I can plug that. And then just to be clear, you mentioned a um, conference. I think it's in the end of October. Can you just be uh, specific about that and what uh, what's um, what people need to sure. know? Sure, sure. So this year is different. We were planning on meeting in California, but due to COVID, it is an online virtual conference. Um, but I am hopeful that we will be able to meet in person in 2021. But this year, it's virtual, which I think is ideal for 
for med students and students who maybe couldn't get away to fly to a, a location to meet in person, but it will be, it'll be remote. It's in late October. You don't have to attend all of it. You can attend what you want. You also get access to the last few years of recordings of various presentations um, by leaders in the field in lifestyle medicine, exercise, stress resilience, um, nutrition, really cutting edge speakers. And what's amazing is that physicians and um, health professionals, the, we, uh, there's the CME involved and we pay um, about $600 to 750 if somebody's not a member to be able to attend the virtual conference. But for students, it's um, 45 or 49, I can't remember which, um, dollars okay. to attend yeah. this year. Yeah. So, so I would strongly encourage you to attend. Right now, poster presentation um, applications are open for a virtual uh, poster presentation. So I encourage you, reach out if you're interested in learning more. Um, but the, the um, conference is a, great way, is a great way to get involved. I'm going to miss, they usually have amazing whole food plant predominant um, foods that they serve. So I'm going to miss out on the great, yeah. the great food and actually gathering in person, but there will be networking opportunities um, and presentations, workshops, a bunch of different things happening. So I encourage you to, to join in at least part of it if you're able. Very cool. I'll make a note to uh, plug that at the top of the podcast as well. Um, just to make sure people are getting that information before, uh, or if they don't choose to listen to the whole episode, which I know everybody listens to <laughs> of course, episode of course. in their, its entirety. Um, <laughs> so let me just make a note of that right here. Um, well, I feel like we have about 15 minutes or so left, and I feel already remiss in not um, getting more about your personal story of breast cancer. Um, but what I think... I think I want to do is just plug that at the top too. And, and there's a couple of great videos of you discussing in more in depth than we'll have time for anyway here. Um, would that be okay with you if I direct of people course. to previous videos or, or podcasts that you've done uh, more on that topic? Most definitely. Awesome. And then um, maybe we'll get into some more listener questions here and, and maybe we can... Uh, dive deeper into the listener questions than I thought we might have time for in the first place. Sure. If that's okay. Of course. Uh, so feel free to be as thorough or as, uh, you know, kind of rapid fire as you'd <laughs> like. Um, but some of the topics that I'm curious about and that uh, other people are as well, um, I'm reading here. How do patients seeking a primary care doc or an OBGYN or any other specialty find one that is serious and knowledgeable about practicing the important tenets of lifestyle and preventive medicine? Sure. So on the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's website, you can look for physicians who are um, who have that American Board of Lifestyle Medicine ABLM certification. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would, I guess I would encourage patients to start with. Look for somebody who has um, diplomat of um, DIP ABLM, American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and if somebody doesn't find somebody in the right specialty, I guess, who's gone through the actual certification process, they can also look for someone who's an ACLM, American College of Lifestyle Medicine member, um, because more than likely they'll have more of an interest in that area. Yeah. But you'll hear, and you'll see a wide variety. I mean, there are different, there, the majority of our physician members are in primary care, mm -hmm. um, However, we're getting more and more specialist, um, specialists as well. It really is permeating all areas of 
all areas of medicine, and you'll find you'll find several several themes. And so around nutrition, I, there's often a lot of confusion over you know here's this latest fad diet or here's this latest you know you should drink more coffee or whatever. It's going to help X, Y, or Z. But really, you'll find yes, yeah, I have cheers mine. Up. I have just, mine here as well. Yeah, let's cheers so, our coffee. <laughs> so, but you'll find that for most people, and um, in most of the healthful diets that are promoted, um, you know, they're not going to say to eat more more processed food or to eat more junk food, right? Like most of right. them will say to eat more plants, and that's why in that kind of tagline, that's simple: eat a whole food, um, plant predominant, um, type of diet. So if you look at the blue zones, the area by, um, Dan Butler and National Geographic, where people live longer than in other areas, you'll see they're different. They're different diets in the, what are called blue zones, but most of them have a high percentage of whole foods. So fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, legumes, beans, um, and have, you know, whether or not Mediterranean, where you have some, some fish and, you know, they, they all have different threads, but most of them, um, Dean Ornish's diet, uh, that's been shown to reverse, reverse heart disease, um, or the DASH diet, you start to see all these threads are, are to eat foods, um, that are mostly whole, that are, are, are minimally processed, um, not needing to be extreme. You know, we can have somebody say everyone must be vegan, um, but a vegan diet can consist of, of processed foods that aren't healthy. And so what life, you'll find lifestyle medicine specialists um, just saying to, to eat more whole foods, eat more, um, eat more plants. Um, so you can break the message down or, or exercise. We should all be getting, hopefully everyone's getting about 30 minutes of exercise at least um, five days a week, 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes of vigorous but really, like we can argue about the specifics of should somebody do this specific weight training, this or that. But most people, most of some practitioners will say, start moving, get moving, do something. The best sort of exercise is whatever your patient will do, right? Yeah. We see the most tremendous benefit when somebody goes from no exercise to a little bit of exercise. So rather than getting caught in the details, let's just get people moving more, right? Let's just get people eating more plants, eating healthier. Let's get people um, stressing less. Let's get people to form those connections. Our Pastor just, Surgeon General did a great job of, of helping to emphasize the importance of connections, that um, the uh, social isolation, which we're concerned about even more now with COVID, mm-hmm. um, you know, what type of mental health effects does that have? And what type of physical health does that have, health issues does that, um, is that connected with? So we need to help people form meaningful connections. Sleep, it's often minimized, especially in med school and residency. Sleep's not that important. You know, like we're the go-getters who can power through anything. But really we know um, there's more and more really strong literature looking at the dangers of shift work, the dangers of of, um, sleep deprivation, especially when it's chronic. And so the importance of sleep and restoration, and it's not just um, not just kind of one of those fluff things on the side, but has true health benefits. And then stress. How do we deal with stress? Stress is here to stay, right? It's it's part of life. But how do we how do we learn to um, how do we learn to deal with it? Herbert Benson was I had the privilege of of meeting him at one of the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine conferences. He's I would think of him as the father of stress, but he coined the relaxation response. And and we often start to think like, oh, in order to reduce stress, does it have to be that you do a certain type of yoga or a certain type of meditation? Well, no, it's just eliciting that relaxation response. Um, getting in that parasympathetic mode, and it can be elicited by closing your eyes uh, or taking some deep breaths. And um, and you know, for some people, it's long distance running. For other people, it's just breathing in and on and out. 
breath, focusing on a certain phase and or phrase and doing that. So it's that emphasis on some of these, these, um, simple things. That's a long response. No, no, I I find mindfulness and and meditation. It seems it's, uh, it sounds so enticing, but it also seems a little intimidating. Um, (laughs) and, and I would, I would like to think of myself as someone who engages in those practices, but really I never truly have to any meaningful degree. Mm -hmm. And partly because I don't really know where to start, or maybe I've tried for a minute here and there and it just doesn't stick. And, um, but it's definitely something that doesn't need to be so intimidating or it doesn't need to, you don't need to go to a, an ashram in India to, to practice meditation. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'd encourage you to look at Herbert Benson, some of Herbert Benson's work, the American College of Life Psalmist has great resources as well on yeah. managing stress, but Herbert Benson, I mean, he, I remember at the, at the conference, he just told, he had all the physicians sit there and, and get comfortable and, and breathe in. And on the out breath, we would say a word phrase or um, something that we connected with in our native language. And um, just to spend, I think, I don't know if we spent like five minutes or so doing that. And he said, um, you know, we get so caught up on like, are we doing it perfectly? But really it's just about taking that time to reset and enter that parasympathetic mode. Yeah. Because we are used to, like, I talk fast, I act fast, I move fast, I want to do as much as possible. Yep. However, um, you know, it's it's often that chronic stress where we're just at that, like, go, go, go level nonstop. And that is fine for a certain amount of time, but it's that chronic, chronic high level of stress that can be really detrimental to health. And so it's learning how to, how to come back down and find um, what works for that person to elicit the relaxation response. Um, we know exercise is the best form. I exercise is the best form of, of, um, stress reduction or helping to manage stress. Yeah. So what I actually want to get into that process. next. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, did you, uh, want to finish that? I didn't uh, mean to cut you off. No, no. But so reach out, try things as far as stress reduction. Um, Herbert Benson, the center for mind, body medicine, uh, has some great resources in your of life. So medicine has great resources on stress management, but we're finding it's really important for providers to practice self-care. I mean, it's often, it seems so, it seems like as providers, we should know that, we should do that. However, we also know that the suicide rates among healthcare providers, we know depression, burnout, um, people leaving the healthcare field is at a high level. Yeah. And that's even before COVID. Um, and so, so how do we use self-care? American College of Life Summit has a new educational program that should be released soon as far as really focusing on provider self-care, but we need to nurture our self-care. We, or we need to nurture ourselves as far as health. Um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I went and met with, I sought out, I, I'm, I already, I already was really healthy, but when I was diagnosed, I was like, I want to meet with the dietitians again. I want to meet with exercise physiologists again. I exercised about 30 minutes every day throughout 16 rounds of chemo and four surgeries. And so really seeking out those, um, seeking out those experts uh, but we know that we have to help providers with their self-care. If if providers, uh, um, if, uh, if if doctors and nurses are not in, in eating healthy and um, if they're not exercising, they're much less likely to enforce it or not enforce, to recommend it. Yeah. Um, and it helps patients as far as those behavior changes. And so we need to do those. So as I was saying, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I met with a physician who said, I said, oh, I've, I've taken the mindfulness-based stress reduction um, course by John Kabat-Zinn. Like, I've taken all these things, and they said, um, the provider, the physician who I met with said, you know those things, but are you actually practicing them? And it's even, yeah. even though I teach a class on stress and sleep at our university, 
I was like, I don't have time for that. I'm go, go, go. I'm a mom. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm volunteering. I'm doing all of these things. And so really taking time and realizing the importance of those self-care behaviors is incredibly important as med students, as residents, as um, when you're out in, in practice. Yeah. Now, if we're not given the the framework or the, the kind of infrastructural support mm-hmm. in that way, then you just got a bunch of type A people who are going to go, go, go and not yeah. take care of themselves because mm-hmm. they're trying to, you know, be high achievers or they um, have some mm-hmm. other uh, goal in mind that they need to accomplish or achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're, we're running so- lower, lower and lower on time uh, <laughs> by the minute here as, uh, as time goes. Um, but there's basically three other topics I want to oh, sure. just get into here with regard to listener questions. I'll start with uh, one of them regarding kind of just those topics you were just recently talking about, with which is mental and physical health. Um, mm-hmm. And this listener just asks about the connection between mental and physical health and the scientific evidence for this connection. And that's really all it says. But is, is there uh, maybe keep it to just a minute or two of just some quick hits on this, just so we can get to uh, a couple other yeah. topics here. Um, Cause I want to, I want to let you loose and, and have you talk forever <laughs> about it, but. Yeah. So it's, that's an incredibly interesting field. The psycho neuroimmunology, um, the mind body connection uh, is incredibly interesting and yeah. we keep having more and more literature. So that's where I, at the American college of lifestyle medicine um, and our program at MSU Denver Lifestyle medicine is really focusing on the evidence. And so you'll find many people who like to, I don't know, geek out on the literature, like show me the literature. Like if I'm going to take time to do mindfulness, I want to see the literature. I want to see if I sleep more, that it's truly going to help my memory and my creativity and my mood. Like I want to see that literature. Right. Yeah. So how do we know Uh, that that works? Yeah. Yeah. So, so mind body, uh, we see, we see more and more connections at, um, there's, Oh, I would say that lifestyle medicine dives deeper into that mind-body connection than a lot of areas do, really looking at somebody's, um, looking at the impact of what we eat on mental health and how that's connected with physical health, looking at exercise. We know that, so I believe it's Dr. Eddie Phillips who said not exercising is a depressant. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so the importance of um, it, it doesn't mean we're not going to use antidepressants for somebody who's depressed. However, there is a tremendous impact on on our um, mental health and how that it, mental emotional health and well being and how that impacts our physical health. And then the same thing, physical health and our behaviors impacting our emotional and mental health. Stress is an obviously really easy connection to see, but also looking at the at the role of stress in we can go through every system um, in the body as far as what stress psychological stress and how that impacts every single system. Um, as an ob we know it can throw off uh, menstruation. We know it can, the, the um, association between, oh, anyway, we can no, no, that, that actually so kind of transitions perfectly uh, into the next question here. It's kind of a two-parter um, mm-hmm. because it has to do with your bread and butter, uh, the world of OBGYN, um, which is, the question is, uh, if a woman has an irregular period, are there natural ways, as in without birth control, to regulate it? Some examples, an unusual number of days between cycles, like 19 or 20 days, uh, 
does it have to, or sorry, doesn't have consistent number of days between cycles, 25 days, then 30 days, then 21 days. Um, and the second question is, are there any best practices in general regarding women approaching menopause? And then specifically, how would you help a woman regulate her hormones during that time? That was a lot, lot to throw at you <laughs> just right here, kind of towards the end of our time. But, um, if you can address or want to address or want me to repeat any of that, uh, yeah, feel free. Sure. Sure. No, I can give you some kind of general high level, high level overviews. This is something that, um, that I speak and write about, um, and can go into great depth, but just as an, an, as an overview. So first of all, someone with irregular, irregular periods, I'm always, my doctor hat on, I'm always going to recommend that they see their primary care doctor, Mm -hmm. um, and possibly see a gynecologist at that primary gynecologist or the primary care provider to address it because, there's so many reasons, right? And um, so many reasons why somebody's menstrual cycle could be irregular and um, and lifestyle medicine isn't just about using lifestyle medicine. It's about using conventional medicine, but also emphasizing where we see a lifestyle component as well. But there are so many reasons why somebody's menstrual cycle could be off. It could be um, endocrine in nature. It could be polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, of course, it could be some... some um, anyway there could be a lot of pathology, which is why you right. want somebody to go see their provider. However, most, um, I would say for, for lifestyle, as far as lifestyle behaviors, all of the different things that support overall health are going to support endocrine health are going to support, um, somebody's, um, somebody's, uh, hypothalamic pituitary, um, ovarian access and, and kind of everything that's needed for those normal cycles. And so, Healthy lifestyle behaviors across across the board, um, physical activity, not exercising too much, um, but not being inactive, managing stress in healthful ways, uh, having a um, a healthful diet. All of those things are supportive for for endocrine health, for overall health and well being, and thus um, reproductive health as well and menstrual cycles. However, um, lifestyle medicine wouldn't say do those things and do, and neglect not the exploration of other pathology. You know, could it be due could it be due to a fibroid? Could it be due to um, something else that needs to be addressed? So that's where healthy lifestyle practices are beneficial, but also go go see go see your doctor. Go right. talk to a gynecologist. Right. Great. No, that's a good answer. Um, the The second part of that question um, focuses on women approaching menopause. Are there any just kind of general recommendations or best practices that uh, you have in mind, or just you know, again, you can give us the big overview or the summary of. Uh, yeah. of the whole topic. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, another area that I love speaking about with my breast cancer diagnosis, I went through premature menopause and I'm in, in the middle of hot flashes and night sweats and learning to deal with those before I thought I would need to. Yeah, and wow. as a gynecologist, as a gynecologist, I, um, I love exploring menopause and the connections with lifestyle as medicine, um, whether that's supporting bone health, whether that's supporting, um, heart health, uh, we know that menopause with hot flashes, night sweats, um, what we call vasomotor symptoms, um, vaginal dryness. I mean, there's kind of the whole host of, uh, of menopausal, of, of things that go along with menopause. Yeah. We know that healthy lifestyle behaviors can support someone's long-term health and well-being. Um, and so once again, somebody who's having menopausal symptoms, see your doctor, um, your primary care provider, or your gynecologist who has more, even more expertise in that area. Um, but if somebody, if somebody were talking to me about that, I would say, once again, we're going to talk about those lifestyle p- pillars, those, you know, what are you eating? 
are you physically active because there are connections with that and, and how you're feeling approaching menopause, perimenopause. Um, so doing all those healthy lifestyle behaviors and then looking, are there other things that we can do to address those menopausal symptoms? Um, possibly. So both with, with irregular menstrual cycles and with um, approaching menopause and other symptoms, do we need to use prescription drugs? Lifestyle medicine providers aren't anti-drugs. They're about using, I think most of us encourage looking at the lifestyle components, but also looking at um, medication and sometimes surgery where needed as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really sounds like you're really focusing on those, I think it was those six kind of aspects mm -hmm. of, uh, of lifestyle medicine that we talked about in uh, um, your email signature, the eat plants, keep moving, sleep mm -hmm. well, be present, stay calm, love people. Those are the foundations of health and wellness. Mm -hmm. But um, if I may summarize for you that pathology, of course, can happen on top of that even when you've got those aspects maximized or optimized. And, and that's kind of what happened uh, with you is, is um, from my understanding, with your breast yeah. cancer diagnosis, you were doing the best you could at all those things at the time and, and still had uh, yeah. A, yeah. A, you know, chronic disease. A surprise diagnosis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, and at first I did the very much like, why me? I was 41 and had a completely normal mammogram. And then a year and one week later had a screening mammogram that showed uh, invasive breast cancer against my chest wall. So no symptoms, um, no symptoms. I was eating, eating healthy, exercising every day. I breastfed my kids. I didn't have a strong family history. I, um, anyway, I was doing all of the, all of the right things and, um, and pathology of course still can happen. No one is, no one is immune regardless of the type of lifestyle someone is living. And so, yeah. um, so kind of the why me, but then why not me? One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer throughout their lifetime. And, um, lifestyle medicine is, is, you know, I used it to move through, to move through treatment and I'm doing what I can to advocate for others, being able to embrace it. Lifestyle medicine really like you don't have to be part of the lifestyle medicine, I would say, movement that continues to grow and grow and grow. I mean, our, our growth and our, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and just the number of people interested in it continues to explode and amaze um, and amaze all of us, I think. Um, but but um, it's really about, about how do we take this information and share it with, um, with everyone? And how do we, how do we make it mainstream, mainstream or how do, how do we truly change and transform healthcare into really healthcare and not just disease care, but how do we truly help the health of ourselves as providers, as, as doctors, as students, we need to start um, with our own health behaviors. And then how do we help to share those with others and help um, to help? How do we, how do we help um, the world? And so I think that it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to be a med student um, it's an exciting time because really we're seeing this transformation. It's not, this is an alternative. This is, this is mainstream um, and it's moving more and more mainstream. Health systems are jumping on board, communities, we're coming together. So for those of you at Rocky Vista, you're already in one of the healthiest states, if not the healthiest, depending on what you look at yeah. in the United States. Um, I'm hoping that you already embrace some of lifestyle medicine and want to continue learning more. I encourage you to join the American College of Lifestyle Medicine as a trainee um, and get involved. You don't have to take the board certification, though, of course, you're welcome to. And we'd love you to once you're, you know, once you're a specialist. 
but, um, but learn, 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 um, you know, learn about nutrition, learn about physical activity, learn about it. And often when you start learning about it for yourself, it gets exciting and then you want to share it with others. And so, um, anyway, I encourage you to reach out to form a trainees group or just to learn more on your own. We're here for you. And there is a whole community of physicians and other health professionals who are passionate about healthy lifestyles and, um, Anyway, it's, it's contagious. When you feel better, you want to spread it with others and help patients, help your colleagues. Um, the world needs us now more than ever. So join the movement. That's it's awesome. Amazing. I know that's a, a beautiful summary of, of many things we've talked about and kind of a call to action for anyone who's listening to uh, get out there and, and just learn more. And uh, you'll probably learn something that you like and want to <laughs> and want to dive deeper into it. So um, I'll let you go now because uh, we're even over time. So thank you so much for being super generous with your time and your information and just your your warmth of, of spreading uh, uh, your passion about, about medicine in general and, and lifestyle medicine specifically. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Take care. time talking to Dr. Tollefson and I hope to do it again sometime. I hope you all don't forget to leave reviews and spread the word to people you think might enjoy the show. And of course, send any good guests my way at the primary care podcast at gmail.com. So now I will just play us out with an old song from The Delicious Dishes. I thought it was an appropriate one for our guest who is currently battling cancer. And this one is just some reflections and thoughts on the concept of life and death and and what it all means. So no big deal there, I guess. Um, Big topic, though. But when you create Art, it's always kind of fun, but also incredibly terrifying to look back and check out what your younger self thought was quality work and thought was profound. Uh, But as much as that is difficult, I don't know. I still like this song. So I think it holds up the philosophical musings of a younger me. So hope you dig it. We'll catch you on the next episode. This one is called Philosophy Philosophize. God damn, that blackout curtain always lurking. I used to not think about it when I was a younger person. Years bring you close to your fears for certain. Lately, everything seems more urgent. It's easy to overthink it and underanalyze it. It's another thing entirely to criticize it or despise it. The eternal ever after, life's evil twin. Now I'm thinking more about where we're going than where I've been. It's taking me away from the experience of living. Because I fear death, I lose breath that I'm given. What's the meaning of meaninglessness? I want answers to the questions. What's the meaning of this? Yeah.
Is there such a thing as free will? No, that's gonna cost ya. I tossed ya a couple of nickels to exhaust ya. We cling to the pennies even if we have plenty. They buy the free will that we all seem to envy. Philosophy philosophize. The more you laugh, the more you cry. I'm trying to buy time by living in my mind's eye. I'm trying to find why. I'm trying to climb high. I'm trying to find why. Trying to fly higher than the intellect allows Boost me up to the clouds so I can see what's around And then come down Go walk around the town Sightseeing with smells, feels, tastes, and some sounds Feel my senses form a consensus When this ends it won't feel like it's ended Forever is a concept I can't grasp It's either fate to black or another back to back I feel my senses form a consensus Ends. It won't feel like it's ended Forever is a concept I can't grasp It's either fate to black or another back to of free will and I still feel like a fish with no idea the rains fill no idea drains till it finds the same mill spins around the cycle like a ferris wheel comes back and fills the river like the blood through the arteries the part of me that feeds all the marginalized needs of the faraway seeds that sure need some loving statistically speaking some of them will get nothing it doesn't bother me the math is the philosophy The universe chose and grows forever probably But honestly to me it doesn't seem like it's growing Because we only see it moving super slow motion Super super slow motion Super slow motion Super super slow motion Super slow motion I want emotions But I'm an ocean of chemicals That travel down the tentacles Make it all seem so sensible That I could be born Love, laugh, live, and die And exist with this wish that I could ever find Why? Why? I say, and you say, why not? You only get one shot, so might as well give it all you got Everything I need for eternity's right here I got a picture of life and death, and it's clear I feel my senses form a consensus So when this ends, it won't feel like it's ended Forever is a concept I can't grasp Either fate to black or another back to back I feel my senses form a consensus When this ends it won't feel like it's ended Forever is a concept I can't grasp It's either fate to black or another back to Senses form a consensus when this ends, it won't feel like it's ending.